0: Hey friends, Nels here. Welcome to the Journey Church podcast. Today we're in a message series called Don't Feed the Wildlife. We all have beasts inside of us that we try to keep tamed and controlled, like lust, anger, pride, resentment, envy, and greed. Today we're looking at how to keep those beasts from running wild and ultimately how to kill them. Let's tune in. We work very hard at keeping it quiet, thinking we have it tamed, controlled hoping no one will find out. We pretend we are normal, if anyone is really normal. But sometimes we let it out to run wild, heedless to the damage it is creating. We cover it up, make excuses for it, but we still feed it. What is your beast? Is it lust? Anger? Pride? Resentment? Envy? Greed? Are you ready to kill it? Hey, good morning. My name's Derry Long. It's great to see you. We're in the middle of a series called Don't Feed the Wildlife. You can check it out online at don'tfeedthewildlife.com. And uh, when I first saw the sermon series, I thought, uh, I thought of an incident that happened in my childhood. I grew up in northwest North Dakota on a farm, and my dad and one of our neighbors caught a raccoon, and they decided they were going to see if they could domesticate this raccoon. And so they put it in a box, they fed it, and then they took a broomstick and put a, put a glove with straw in it and tried to pet it, and, and they worked for weeks, and they found out you don't domesticate a raccoon you just get rid of it. And uh, so it disappeared. There are certain things in our life you and I can't domesticate. They won't be tamed. And we have to replace those things with things that are healthy. So uh, my topic today is lust. Thought, yeah, they gave the 66-year-old guy the topic of <laughs> lust. That's not actually how that happened, but it's a funny line, so. (laughs) Um, We usually associate lust with sexual connotation, and there are times in the Bible when that's true. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 28, says a man lusts in a woman after his heart. He's already committed adultery. But in fact, the word lust is not connected to, automatically connected to sexual activity. The word lust reflects an intense desire An intense desire that even when quenched, leaves us unsatisfied. An intense desire that even when quenched, leaves us unsatisfied. And so it has to do with sexual activity, but it has to do with a lot more in our lives than just that. It's used in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, being led by Moses, and in a time of deprivation and uncertainty, the Bible says they began to lust again for the menu, the leeks and onions of Egypt. And so it's used in in multiple ways. And uh, we're going to explore that uh, this morning. Our scripture, you'll see, comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It refers to Adam and Eve and their interaction with the, with the fruit. And we read, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now the interesting part about that verse, one of the interesting things is that John, in 1 John chapter 2, alluding to that threesome, speaks of the lust of the flesh, good for food, the lust of the eye, pleasant to look on, and the pride of life would make me wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, but they're talking about a piece of fruit. They're not fundamentally talking about a sexual activity. They're talking about a piece of fruit. So lust is an intense desire that even when quenched, leaves us unsatisfied. Um, Thursday night, I got back from London. And uh, I spent the first uh, week there doing some work. And I uh, was able to sit under the great te- trees of Hyde Park and write spent some time writing, I wrote a long article on pastoral theology. I've been in this industry for 45 years and realized I've never really organized my thoughts about what the church is and what people are to it and how to work with people. And there's all kinds of views about that. One is an organizational view that churches just need to be run like organizations and in fact for many years churches suffered because they were run so poorly. Paul says let Let's do things decently and in order. And uh, one of the great strengths of Journey Church is a council who has incredible levels of strength and insight in that area. Um, A church involves a mission. And uh, so Jesus said to the disciples, go out and make disciples. And uh, much of the church has suffered because it, it was not driven by mission and in fact, many parachurch organizations like Navigators and Campus Crusade and InterVarsity, some of them started in response to the fact that the church wouldn't rise up and serve the Lord in given areas. And so we have people like Bob Schwan who won't let us sleep at night without calling us and talking about missional communities or something like that. And that's, uh, that's good. That's good for us. But the church is not just an organization. It's just not a mission the primary word for the church in the New Testament is community. And a community has certain traits that have little to do with organization and not much to do with mission. One of the primary metaphors of the church is the word body. And is used in the New Testament to primary, il, primarily illustrate the diversity. And churches tend to try to make everybody conform. And we use telling and measure your discipleship by Conforming, and yet a primary primary metaphor has to do with diversity. And then, what in the world do you do when the church is called the bride of Christ? How do you articulate that? So, I spent uh, I spent two or three days writing pages on a pastoral theology. Spent another couple days writing about uh, empowerment. My PhD work is on how to create and sustain empowering social environments. And empowerment, you can can make money in a business without empowering people. And you can actually build a church without empowering people. But the millennials, which are the 35 and under, they ask the question that's the primary question for building an empowering culture. What kind of place do we want this to be? And they're not interested in a place that doesn't empower people, that doesn't show respect to people, that doesn't give people voice, Those are aspects of empowerment. And uh, then I spent a day writing on institutional revitalization. That's really what Moses was doing with Israel, what Nehemiah was doing with Jerusalem. And how do you build institutional revitalization? So like what I've just described to you, that's my idea of fun. (laughs) Then uh, then I met with uh, three different meetings with uh, people who specialized in areas. I met with... uh, PhD from University of Nottingham whose specialty is (laughs) micro-sociology. I I, I laughed when she told me too. I thought, man, but you know what micro-sociology is? It's how small statements that you and I make in normal conversation can have inordinate impact in a child's life, a spouse's life, or another person's life. And we often associate that with a negative trait, but in fact, it can have a positive trait. And the question I was asking her is, so if you have a church full of people, how can we help one another use small statements in our conversation that impart respect and honor and life to other people? And you don't have to be a professional counselor to do that or have a lot of training All of us carry that in our spirit, the yearning to give life to other people. So that was like my first week. My second week, I invited Sam Bennett, who's our pastor of technology and who has a lot of background in theater, to come over and join me, and then we just played. So we went to a whole bunch of theater, we went to the Globe where where they built a theater identical to Shakespeare's Theater and went to a theater there. We went to Ronnie Scott's, the greatest jazz club in the world, and heard Kyle Eastwood. That's Clint Eastwood's oldest son, who has a jazz quintet that was the single greatest music performance I've ever seen. But on Monday night, last Monday night, we were sitting in Her Majesty's Theater on Haymarket. Now, the neat thing for church people is Her Majesty's Theater if you know church history, was the theater where Dwight L. Moody, who was the predecessor of Billy Graham, Dwight L. Moody was the greatest evangelist in the world. Dwight L. Moody and Ira Sankey held weeks of crusades at that theater and changed the spiritual environment of London. And uh, we were there to see Phantom of the Opera. Now, if you know anything about Phantom of the Opera... Lloyd Webber's uh, great musical it's about an opera house and there's the phantom who lives in the subterranean reaches of that opera house and he has a deformed face he was born that way and uh, then he was ridiculed for years so there was a big hole in his heart a big wound in his spirit and a new young beautiful woman became the soprano of that opera house, and he became obsessed with her and wanted to possess her and tried to coerce her into a relationship. And it had only marginally anything to do with sexuality. It had to do with him finding something that would heal the wound in his heart. And the approach he took, which was coercion... The phantom discovered coercion is not a tool of love. And he had to let her go. But the pursuit of that woman was lust. An unquenchable desire that still would have left him unsatisfied. So we're going to look at three aspects of what it means to lust. And here's the first one. It is trying to meet a need by ordering off the wrong menu. Trying to meet the need by ordering off the wrong menu and going to Perkins, and the waiter or waitress comes over after you've had a look at the menu and says, "You know, I'd, I'd like some fried rice." Yeah, we don't have. I'm sorry, sir. All right, how about some egg drop soup then? I'll just have the egg drops. No, well, well we don't really have any. All right, orange chicken. You got? Well, you see, sir, this is Perkins. If you want, if you want, um, if you want chicken or. Uh, a steak or something. We can do that. But, but this stuff, there's a place across from the high school and they serve this kind of stuff. Well, sometimes when there's a wound in our spirit or a hole in our heart, we actually start looking at a menu and we think the things on that menu are going to satisfy this hunger when in fact there's nothing on that menu that's going to satisfy the hunger we have. Chris Townley preached a few weeks ago on John 4. John 4 is about Jesus and the woman at the well. And he's chatting with her, and as the conversation goes on, he says, well, I tell you what, you go home and get your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, no, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband, so this is Six. he says you know this water here if you drink of this water you're going to thirst again but I will give you water so you will never thirst again and not only will you not thirst again your heart will be like a like a fountain that bubbles up life to other people he was saying to her you've got a hunger in your heart but you're ordering off the wrong menu now how, how do I know if I'm ordering off the wrong menu so let's 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 just look at a couple little ways of finding out if we're ordering off the wrong menu. We're going to use two. One is one is uh, reaction, and the other is recharacterization. You ever seen somebody just react to something way out of proportion to what the thing is itself? The one time we were involved in a social event, and part of our responsibility was inviting people, and we didn't invite somebody because we didn't actually know they were going to be in town and then we found out they were in town and we just thought somebody would let them know and they would come and then we found out that not only were they in town but since they had not been personally invited by us and by the way this didn't happen in this state so don't wonder if it's the person sitting next to you <laughs> they were they were really upset. Then the wife calls and says, Well, you want to talk to so and so. And then we well, got to talk to so and so. No, 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 we we just didn't know you were gonna be here. The reaction was so out of proportion that it meant two things. This reaction is not coming from this event, it's coming from history, and it's coming from what they have done with their history. Not just history. We all got history. What have we done with our history? And when consistently in my life, I overreact to events way out of proportion, then then I'm actually asking things to fill hungers in my heart that those things can't fill. And I'm demanding that those things respond a certain way. Here's here's another one. Recharacterization. So let's imagine a husband and a wife and we're going to illustrate three different conversations. First, uh, there's a misunderstanding, and so they're trying to just discuss how this happened, and so let's say the wife said, yeah, but I didn't do that because you said, and he just says, well, fine. It's always all my fault. Suddenly, we're talking about, well, who said what, and now we're talking about absolute blame. How how did this conversation of this thing become about this thing? Let, let's, let's do another one. It's quiet in here. Um, so one or the other spouse is 15 minutes late. The other spouse is mad. This is why are you so mad? I, I just don't. I don't matter at all to you, do I? I just don't matter. Nothing I care about, you care about at all. I don't even know why I bother to get up in the morning. Whoa! I forgot. Now, if I forget seven days out of seven, then we got recharacterization on both sides. But, but in fact, one of the spouses is understanding at that moment. I don't get. I don't even dare be human because my humanness will be interpreted as an attack on my spouse. Let's do one more. These are fun, aren't they? (laughs) So, the husband and wife are having a difference of opinion. Yeah, I said, no, no, he says, but I, no, I don't think that though. I think this, fine, fine. Nothing I say ever matters to you, does it? I don't know why you always treat me like I'm just beneath you. Ooh. In all three of these, one of the spouses just shuts up because they think, well, I don't want my spouse to think they're just beneath me or that I, don't, that I blame them for everything. Or they, so if this conversation is always going to go into this, what, what, what is this? What is this I'm talking about? This is about somebody with a history either of sin or have been sinned against what they've done with their history, but it is fully alive today. And this discussion, any one of those three, has just been a match to the powder keg. So you could have a spouse. They've married, they've married their spouse. And their spouse has low self-esteem, let's say. And their spouse tries to constantly tries to affirm them three times a day, five times a day, eight times a day, 12 times a day, 15 times a day. But it doesn't matter how many times their spouse says something good. It just gets swallowed up in a black hole because it is never enough. And if they said one negative thing, the one negative thing will overcome 50 positive things. See, those are hints that I'm trying to fill up a hole in my heart, a wound in my soul. I'm trying to meet that need by ordering off the wrong menu, just like the woman at the well. And so I am lusting for affirmation. I'm lusting for agreement. I'm lusting for place. I can't live without this thing Look at another one. Developing an appetite for unhealthy food by repeated behavior. Now, here's what I learned about this. I knew someone who, for health reasons, had to stop eating some food that this person really liked. And they said eventually they lost interest in that food. I got to think about that spiritually. See, spiritually... I can, I, can, uh, I can focus on, uh, on the things I shouldn't be doing, but the Bible says that whatever I concentrate on, I conform to. Or I can live off the truth of the Scriptures, which says good overcomes evil, and so I can think of what is a healthy diet. But can I define a healthy diet for the condition of my soul? Like Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man that does not... Uh, does not walk among, walk among unbelievers or stand or sit with those who don't have faith. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in that law doth he meditate day and night. He's talking about a menu. He's talking about a way that I nourish my soul. So for example, if I need to be on a certain diet that's healthy for me, I should hang around people who eat that food. If I had to be avoiding chicken fried steak, then don't come to the men's group I meet with on Friday mornings. Because when we go to the Western, we call 911 first. <laughs> this is not a litany on self-discipline. <laughs> hey, can I define a healthy diet for my soul? And can I give myself to that diet? So 1 Corinthians 3, 2, Paul says, says I, I gave you milk. I said, I'd like to give you meat, some solid food, but you can't take solid food. He said, you, you can't order off that menu. You haven't gotten yourself to a place that that food is consumable. So he said, I gotta give you milk. So he uses the metaphor of a, of a diet for our spiritual well-being So some people get stuck in a rut of behavior, but they keep feeding off of a menu that perpetuates that behavior. Instead of working against that, start working for what's healthy. Just give me one last one. Segregating my life to give my dysfunction space to thrive. Segregating my life to give my dysfunction space to thrive. What grows the easiest in the environment of your life? I know some people, I come from, part of my relatives, part of my family come are really touchy. Really, you know. My dad had come home from Williston. He <laughs> Yeah, I saw, saw Barney in town today, but he was too good to talk to me. So, where was Barney? Well, he was across the street. <laughs> it didn't matter. I have, I have dozens of relatives for whom that would make absolute sense. I took a bus up to Bismarck, North Dakota once because the, I went to a little high school that had 40 kids in it when I went got down to 23, which was the smallest high school in the state of North Dakota, and when it had 23 students, it went to the state tournament, Class B state tournament. And uh, they only had enough boys for eight players on their boys' basketball team, four of, my, four of whom were my cousins. They had four cheerleaders, two of them were my cousins. And, and that, same, that same school, once it had a team that lost 96 games in a row, so... Uh, so I I take this bus to Bismarck and I'm going to go to the state tournament and watch Epping play where I graduated so we're in this crowded holiday inn and one of my relatives walks in to the restaurant we've already ordered and sits down well the place is full so the waitress hasn't even seen her come in I don't think she sits there for a little bit and then she says "Well, well I guess they've decided not to serve me I wanted to say yeah that's right they, that's right. They saw you coming. And all the waiters and waitresses, they got in the back room and said, see that, see that woman in green? Let's not serve her today. That's, you know. <laughs> so, you, you, so you and I can live in a way where, where toxic things thrive. Well, who wants to do that? But do you pay attention? Do I pay attention Does bitterness easily thrive in my life? Any of us can end up bitter. But I want to conduct my life in a way where it's very difficult for bitterness to get any root. So what do I do about that? If I don't want unhealthy things to thrive, Scripture gives me some advice. Here's one of them. Let the light shine on your life. James 5 says, you know, we always talk about confessing things to God. Well, you know the, you know the, the benefit to us on that is, is we can keep it secret because only us and God know, and God usually doesn't tell a bunch of other people. <laughs> so along comes James in James 5, and he says, confess your sins to one another. And then pray for one another. And when you decide to live in the light and you renounce secrets, it changes the dynamic of your life. When you say, I don't, I don't care, I will not live in secret anymore. Because when I decide to live in secret, there's nothing heavier to carry than secrets. Now, there are consequences if I decide I'm going to order off the wrong menu, then there are consequences. One is other people become objects. I'm in relationship to you, so you will give me that constant affirmation that I need in order to keep my head above water, and I use you. I manipulate you. I'm angry at you when you don't do it. Loss of authority. This thing controls me and consumes me. It isolates me from God. It isolates me from other people. Maybe one of the worst is it disconnects me from me. Miles Davis, the great jazz trumpet player, said, sometimes we have to play a long time to learn how to play like ourselves. I like that. I was a slow starter. It took me a long time to learn to play like myself. But lust, insatiable desire that even when quenched doesn't satisfy disconnects me from me. And I end up living a life I don't want to live and I know that it's not me. Because of that, because of this that we've talked about today, this is why we have a Savior. because all of us have sinned and all of us have been sinned against and all of us have had holes in our hearts and wounds in our spirit and Jesus came part of the gospel he came to heal those wounds I think that's enough for today we set our things aside and let's bow our heads. and uh, thanks for being so attentive this morning. With our heads bowed in prayer, and our eyes are closed, and nobody's looking around. This morning, you can decide. Because of the grace which is the favor and power of God, you can decide. I want to embrace the gospel. I want to drink from the water that I will not thirst again. And you and I can pray a prayer like that. We could pray right where we're seated. Lord, thank you for being on my side. Thank you for caring so much that you sent Jesus to me because you saw my sin. You saw how I've been sinned against. And you saw the wounds in my spirit. And you would not leave me be. Thank you, Lord. If you want to pray something like that, we're just going to wait for a moment. And you express your gratitude to the Lord. Jesus Christ has come to heal that wound. and you and I recognize that those wounds are there because we've sinned and those and others have sinned against us and we can pray and declare to the Lord Lord I'm sorry for my own sin my part in this that I tried to handle this alone and do this alone and control my own life I know you hung on the cross because those were my choices I grieve over them and I tell you this morning I am sorry for that choice you could pray something like that right now Bible tells us that if we ask for forgiveness, He gives it. And right where you're at, you can say, Lord, would you forgive me? Forgive me for handling this on my own. Forgive me for going my own way. Forgive me, forgive me for my sin. Release me from the penalty of this. Grant me mercy, O Lord. Pray something like that right now. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And if anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. right where you're seated you can say Lord I open the door of my heart as much as is within me with as much as I know I open the door of my heart right now and I see you standing there and I say to you Lord Jesus come into my heart come into my heart and bring with you the water so I will never thirst again you can pray that right now. And the scripture says that if you pray the prayer like that and you meant it that he in fact has come into your heart and wants to begin to have fellowship with you and wants you to know that he desires you to have fellowship with him. So thank him right now. Say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that when I open the door of my heart, you've come in right where I've been seated. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we have a Savior who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. For all these who slip their hands up, pray that your grace will flood their heart. I pray that you'll bring a person, a word, a circumstance to them in the very near future that will cement that decision and will remind them that Jesus is saying, yes, I saw you. I heard you. I saw that door open. I've accepted your invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.